0: Good morning, and welcome to this worship service on this beautiful Lord's Day. I invite you to stand for the call to worship from John's Revelation, Chapter 5. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Please join me in the responsive prayer of invocation found in your bulletin. In you, Lord our God, we put our trust. We trust in you. We No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show us your ways, Lord, us your past. Us in your truth, and Jesus, for you are God our Savior, and our hope is in you all long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Guard our lives and rescue us. Do not let us be put to shame, for we take refuge in you.
1: I want to invite you to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today before you're seated. couple of things that I want to uh, highlight in the bulletin. Wednesday evening is the beginning of our children's ministry. If you have children that uh, you want to be involved and you didn't register them, I'm sure it's fine uh, to bring them. And uh, we thank all of you who are involved in working with our children. We appreciate this. And uh, you're making an investment in the kingdom long term. And we, uh, we thank you for that. Uh, also, you'll notice that in, uh, in the middle of October, we're starting uh, a grief group. And if you're interested in that, you see information related to it. Uh, the college is hosting a symposium this weekend on the topic of human trafficking. And uh, this is, a, this is a, an issue that we need to be aware of because it's such a big issue in our world, far bigger than I think uh, we tend to imagine. And so we uh, encourage you to be a part of this gathering. Uh, there are a number of prayer concerns ...that are in the bulletin. We especially want to remember Lynn Perry and her family at the death of her sister this week. There are also a couple of inserts in your bulletin, uh, one about the Ladies Fall Gathering this coming weekend. And also if you're a college student and uh, you would like to be a part of our ministry to to college students... ...and have some input in the ideas of that, we'd love to have you be a part of the gathering and the group... ...and you see information related to that. There are also a couple of inserts this week of um, paintings... And, uh, of course, black and white uh, don't do justice quite to the color originals. But nevertheless, uh, we wanted to, to uh, do this, uh, and every week as we go through this, this series of our family tree, uh, we're going to include uh, a painting for you to take home and to use as a part of your devotional time. Uh, you may or may not uh, be an artist or uh, have connections to art, but I am convinced that God is continually wanting to speak to our hearts through a variety of means. And uh, I think art is one of those. And just as when we go to the prayer room, uh, there are things in the prayer room that you may not have have done before and you know there's clay and paints and different kinds of tactile things there to help us pray and I invariably hear people say to me wow I tried something new and it was an awesome experience with God and and I'm not surprised because when we open ourselves to new things God tends to speak to us and so let me encourage you this week to, uh, to use these images as a part of your time of meditation and your time of reflection. And our prayer is that as we do so, God will speak to our hearts about the new things that he desires to do in our lives and in our church. Let us pray together the prayer of confession printed in your bulletin. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the way of peace. Come into the brokenness of our lives and our land with your healing love. Help us to be willing to bow before you in true repentance and to bow to one another in real forgiveness. By the fire of your Holy Spirit, melt our hard hearts and consume the pride and prejudice which separate us. Fill us, O Lord, with your perfect love which casts out fear and bind us together in that unity which you share with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: The Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 38. About that time, Judah left his brothers in the hill country and went to live near his friend Hira in the town of Adullam. While there, he met the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite man. Judah married her, and they had three sons. He named the first one Ur. She named the next one Onan. The third one was born when Judah was in Kesib and she named him Shelah. Later, Judah chose Tamar as a wife for Ur, his oldest son. But Ur was very evil, and the Lord took his life. So Judah told Onan, It's your duty to marry Tamar and have a child for your brother. Onan knew the child would not be his, and when he had relations with Tamar, he made sure that she would not get pregnant. The Lord wasn't pleased with Onan and took his life too. Judah did not want the same thing to happen to his son Shelah, and he told Tamar, Go home to your father and live there as a widow until my son Shelah is grown. So Tamar went to live with her father. Some years later, Judah's wife died, and he mourned for her. He then went with his friend Hira to the town of Timnah, where his sheep were being sheared. Tamar found out that her father-in-law Judah was going to Timnah to shear his sheep. She also realized that Shelah was now a grown man, but she had not been allowed to marry him. So she decided to dress in something other than her widow's clothes and to cover her face with a veil. After this, she set outside the town of Enam on the road to Timnah. When Judah came along, he did not recognize her because of the veil. He thought she was a prostitute and asked her to sleep with him. She asked, "What will you give me if I do?" "One of my young goats," he answered. "What will you give me? What will you give me to keep until you send the goat?" she asked. "What do you want?" he asked in return. "The ring on that cord around your neck," was her reply. "I also want the special walking stick you have with you." He gave them to her. They slept together, and she became pregnant. After returning home, Tamar took off the veil and dressed in her widow's clothes again. Judah had his friend Hira take a goat to the woman so she could get back, so he could get back the ring and walking stick. But she wasn't there. Hira asked the people of Enam, "Where is the prostitute who sat alongside the road outside your town?" There's never been one here, they answered. Hira went back and told Judah, I couldn't find the woman, and the people of Enam said no prostitute had ever been there. If you couldn't find her, we'll just let her keep the things I gave her, Judah answered, and we'd better forget about the goat, or else we'll look like fools. About three months later, someone told Judah, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has behaved like a prostitute And now she's pregnant. Drag her out of town and burn her to death, Judah shouted. As Tamar was being dragged off, she sent someone to tell her father-in-law, The man who gave me this ring, this cord, and this walking stick is the one who got me pregnant. Those are mine, Judah admitted. She's a better person than I am because I broke my promise to let her marry my son, Sheila." After this, Judah never slept with her again. Tamar later gave birth to twins, but before either of them was born, one of them stuck a hand out of her womb. The woman who was helping tied a red thread around the baby's hand and explained, this one came out first. Right away, his hand went back in, and the other child was born first. The woman then said, what an opening you've made for yourself. So they named the baby Perez. When the brother with the red thread came out, they named him Zira. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to assist us with our tithes and offerings, I invite you to stand for the Gloria Patri. Our Father, we thank you for the blessings from you that we have seen and known and for the blessings that we do not see and know. Grant that your goodness may so penetrate our hearts and minds that all our decisions and actions may express our gratitude and love to you. Amen. You may be seated.
1: These moments when we turn our hearts together in prayer. If you would like to use the altar as your place of prayer, please join me. Father, we thank you that you call us your friends. And that as your friends, you invite us to come to you and and to pour out the burdens of our hearts before you. This morning, we pray for all among us who yearn for life to be different than it is. Heal the sick. Comfort those who are grieving the pain of loss. Make our homes what you want them to be. We pray that you would lead us as families and as a church, as individuals, into wholeness and hope. And in this moment of silence, as we contemplate our lives, hear our prayers. Father, give to us hearts of compassion for people who have hurt us, for people we've hurt. Give us hearts of love for people who suffer around the world. Help us as individuals and as a church to be more interested in the struggles of others than we typically are toward this world that you have created and love. Give us the mind and the heart and the spirit of Christ. Father, we pray that as we look toward the future, as we think about you in our lives, help us help us to let you do what you desire to do. Open the doors that we may have slammed shut. Close the doors that we may have pried open and fill this place with newness of life through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the one who teaches us the motto for prayer, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts
0: Our New Testament scripture reading is from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6, and verse 16. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, open our eyes to your word, to your passion, to your heart. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, let's just get this right out front to begin with. Some passages of scripture probably shouldn't be read in church, and Genesis 38 probably is one of those, right? We actually cleaned it up a little bit. Uh, you know, we 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 found a, found a version that was a little less offensive to our sensibilities of coming to church. Not, you know, maybe went from R to PG. Um, but you know, these kinds of passages make us uncomfortable to read, and and you know we. We, we read these and, and we think, what in the world is that doing in Scripture? You know, I, it, it, when I read these kinds of passages, I think about people who, you know, because uh, a book is, is racy or offensive to them, they want to have it banned from the library or from the school. And, and I'm thinking, have you not read the book of Genesis? Have, have, you read, have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the Scriptures? Come on. It, it's all over the place. I mean, this, this is a story, this is a messy story. And the book of Genesis is about real life and about real people. And this is one of those stories that, that also causes me to say the Scriptures had to be something that God gave us. Because no human being in their right mind who was planning this thing, wanting to impress people, would put this story in. Right? I mean, there's not really a, a good person in this story. But it is here for a reason. I don't think the reason is to, is to give us a model for what you do when you feel desperate about life. I think there's something else going on. I think it will help us understanding this to think about the context. Now, this story takes place in the 2nd century B.C. Sometime, you know, probably between 15, 1600 and 2000 B.C. The dating is a little bit uncertain. This is a totally different culture than what we typically live in, what we, what we understand. And in this story, Judah, who is the grandson of Abraham, one of, the 12, one of the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, marries a Canaanite woman, and they have three children. And the first son, Ur, it sounds like they didn't know, what do you want to name him? Er, and then yeah, that's it, right? All right, that sounds good. We'll take that. You know, he, they, they marry him to Tamar who's also a Canaanite woman, foreigner. And uh, we don't know what happens, but Ur is a very wicked man. Doesn't give us any details, but he's wicked enough that God takes his life. I suspect that's pretty wicked. So here is, here is this woman, Tamar, who is living with a whole another family from what she, where she is used to. And she's in a culture where, where women are identified with the people they marry. In that culture, it's even beyond that. There is a sense of protection in being married that you don't have when you're a widow. And it's a double burden because she doesn't have any children. It's, it's a little bit hard for us to grasp the intense feelings that women have in that culture about children. You know... We have some of that, we understand. But it's so much more intense than we can really get our minds around. All of their identity is wrapped up in bearing children. And you see that in a number of stories as we work our way through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. There's also this, there's also this concept, intense concept, about descendants. We're talking about people who have limited, if any, understanding of the afterlife, They really have no concept of eternity like we do from the New Testament perspective. And for them, if, if you want to carry on your name, if you want to outlive yourself, the only way to do that is through your descendants. Descendants are essentially important. And that's why when God, God says to King Ahab, you know, one of the wickedest kings of Israel, in 1 Kings 21, he says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. And here it is. I'm going to cut off your descendants. It's hard to imagine for them anything more painful than that. And here is Tamar, widow, childless. It is because of these intense, intense feelings about descendants and about bearing children that the concept that's called leverant marriage was established. This is, the, this is the idea that if a man dies and leaves no children for his wife, then his wife can marry his brother and they have a child, but the child is actually the first man's child. So that his descendants, his line can continue. And so Judah says to his second son, Onan, you need to fulfill your responsibility. This is what we do. You need to have a child with Tamar. And he refuses. And it's so important in that culture to Tamar's identity to bear children. And God sees it as such an offense against her that he also takes Onan's life. Judah has one son left. And you can see the wheels turning in his mind. I don't think he's really thinking about the fact that his sons have died because of their wickedness. Something in his mind is saying, maybe Tamar has something to do with this. Now fortunately for him, the third son is still too young to marry. So he says to Tamar, you go back to your father's home and when, when Sheila becomes old enough, I'll send, him, I'll send for you and you can marry him. So Tamar goes to her father's home. Now, here's the thing. When she goes to her father's home, she still is under the the authority and the power of Judah. Even though she goes home and she's with her father, she's in a sense no longer her father's daughter. In the legal, practical sense of the term. She is Judah's property, so to speak. And so Judah says, wait. She has to wait. She can't marry anyone else. She can't. She can't have another relationship. She has to wait, and she waits, and she waits, and she waits until the years go by, and she realizes Shayla is old enough, and Judah's is not going to keep his word, and so Tamar takes matters into her own hands, and she puts on a veil, and she sits by the side of the road because she hears Judah is coming to town. And they have a child together, actually twins. Now you get to the end of this story, and as I said, this is not a story for us to say, "Okay, this is how you, what you do when you feel desperate." This is a story about who God is for desperate people. This is a story about God's kingdom related to people in our world who are vulnerable and pushed to the margins of society and manipulated and taken advantage of. And we tend to read this kind of story as though we were standing back, observing it from a distance and thinking about the people involved, not realizing that we're a part of the story too. Some of us have are at a place in life where we feel desperate, just like Tamar. We feel desperate about what we aren't able to accomplish. We feel desperate about about how we are viewed by the world, about what we're not able to accomplish. It may be a feeling of desperation because we're in a bad relationship and we're trying to get out of it. Or maybe we feel this way because we're trying to have a relationship. Maybe we feel this way because our, our dreams of, of a job or an occupation or, or, or something that we're going to accomplish are crumbling around us. And we've put all of our, our weight, everything we have into seeing this accomplished and we realize it's not happening. Maybe it's the desperate feeling of wanting to be loved. We all feel desperate. Desperate. The sense of, of, of not being able to, to get what we deeply desire. And when you feel desperate like that, it often leads to drastic action. Now for, for, for Tamar, it's this veil. A couple our people in our congregation have made this for us. It, it, it's the veil that she puts on. And this drastic action that she takes... In order to, to have her dream fulfilled and this yearning in her heart and to do something about the desperation that she feels. I suspect that she she thinks to herself, How could I she would never have dreamed that she would find herself in this kind of position, that she would do something like this. But it just shows you how desperate she is. That she is at the end of her rope. There's nothing she can do. She has no power in this world to do anything about what she needs. She is powerless, vulnerable, manipulated, used, taken advantage of. She is shoved to the margins of that culture in every way you could possibly imagine. And the only thing she can think of to do anything about her feelings of desperation is to put on this veil and sit by the side of the road. And wait for her father-in-law to come. And sometimes in our desperation, we do drastic things. Things we could never have dreamed possible we would ever do. So desperate for a relationship, we get into one that we shouldn't. So desperate to be loved, we do things that we shouldn't so desperate to see that dream fulfilled we do things that we shouldn't we could never have imagined us doing but the desperation is so strong and so deep it feels as though this is all we can do what fascinates me about this about this story is that is God's response to her Because the outcome of her desperate act is twin sons. Blessing. She bears children. What she is having a hard time understanding and what we have a hard time understanding is that in our desperation, when we feel like we're at the end of our rope, when we feel like there are no other alternatives, we need to know how much God cares for us that God is with us, that he loves us. The scriptures are filled with, with passages in where God declares his compassion and his grace and his mercy and his love for people who are desperate, for people who are vulnerable and at the edges and the margins of society. All throughout the writings of, of the Of the Pentateuch, the the law, and on and into the prophets, you hear God saying over and over again, I care about people that the world doesn't care about. Psalm 68 is one example. It says, Father of the orphans, champion of the widows is God in his holy house. God makes homes for the homeless, and he leads prisoners to freedom. This is how God feels about people who are desperate. His love and His compassion and His grace is poured out upon us in our desperation. When we feel like there are no alternatives, when we feel like there is nothing else we can do and we've given up hope, we need to know God's love and compassion never ends. God has a soft spot in His heart, if you can say it like that, for people who are desperate and vulnerable. And at the end of our rope, you see it over and over and over again. Isn't it fascinating that when we, in the picture that we get of Jesus in the Gospels, you would think that in the position he's in, who he is, he would be spending his time with people who have power and influence. And yet, where do we see him? Over and over again, he's condemned because he's hanging out with people who are vulnerable on the margins of society, who live lives of desperation. And there's Jesus over and over and over again. But if truth be told, I suspect that while we have feelings of desperation, if we were to be honest, probably putting ourselves into the story, we're probably more akin to Judah than to Tamar. And when you read this story, Don't we tend to, I mean, we're not happy about the fact that that Judah doesn't keep his promise, but we're appalled at what Tamar does. And I I can hear us responding the same way Judah does to people in society and culture who make desperate decisions. And our response is, take them out and burn them. And I think, God, we don't realize that God holds us accountable for how we respond to desperate people. How we respond to people who are vulnerable on the margins of society, who have been rejected by our culture. God doesn't just say, I care about the fatherless and the widows and the orphans. He also says, anyone who denies justice to them is cursed. God is serious about this. And why is it that we struggle so much to judge people? Why why is it that that when our sensibilities are offended, we lash out at people? I think it goes back to something God says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. In the 10th chapter, God says that I want you to take care of of the foreigners and the aliens among you and the widows and the orphans and all of these people who are most vulnerable in our society. I want you to take care of them. Why? Because you know what it feels like to be a foreigner enslaved. You know what it feels like to be under the thumb of Pharaoh and, and be able to do absolutely nothing about it. And I think the reason we tend to be judgmental toward people who make us feel uncomfortable is because we've forgotten everything we have is the grace of God. Every privilege we have, every blessing, every benefit in our lives is only because of the grace of God in our lives. And when we forget that, that's the moment we become judgmental. I think it's imperative for us to ask ourselves, is there anything in our lives that might actually be contributing to people feeling vulnerable and desperate and marginalized? The decisions that we make, the, our actions are inactivity. Is it possible that we might actually be like Judah, contributing to the despair that people feel? And maybe we do that when we speak words of judgment toward people who need grace. I think it, I think it, ought, to, it ought to change the way we, we see some of the, the cultural issues in our country, in our world. We ought to at least take a second look about how we respond to things like immigration and race and poverty and the inner city and gender. You know, we've, we've come a long way since the second century BC in, in the way that women are viewed in our culture. But we still have a ways to go. I just saw a study recently that, that said women doing the same job as men make about 75 to 80% of the salary that men make. And we see all over our culture women treated as second-class citizens. And what is so important so devastating, and what, what is most painful is that that mindset is in the church too. There are many places in the church where women who have God given gifts and abilities to teach and to lead and, and, and to preach, to represent God to people, are not allowed to do so simply because they're female. And, and I know the, there, there are scriptural arguments for that. But my, my contention is that if we're going to turn to scripture, then, then I think we ought to at least recognize that the fact that God calls women like Deborah and Huldah to be leaders and to teach and to judge and to, in essence, be the word of God to the people of Israel, that that ought to carry at least as much weight as the the things that Paul says to people in a specific setting about specific circumstances to specific people. The issues that that come up in our world are complex and, and we struggle to get them. But somewhere in the mix... The church has has missed the heart and the mind of God about people who are marginalized and needy and vulnerable and desperate. And instead of being a place to help them, we tend to be a place that pushes them away. I don't think God is, is condoning Tamar's behavior. In fact, about seven generations later, we find a similar story in the Scriptures. A woman named Ruth, who is a foreigner in Israel and a widow, discovers that she has a relative, Boaz. And and her solution to that is not to seduce him, but to go to him and say, Would you be interested in being my husband? And they get married, and God is honored. And the truth of the matter is, in this story, there really aren't any. There really aren't any heroes in this story. I mean, everybody involved basically makes bad decisions. And yet, God is in it, and God transforms it, and God works in it, in a miraculous way. You know, when, you, when you read stories like this and you read, you read about Abraham's family, you know, it, it's like you take, it's like Peyton Place and All My Children and Dynasty and Jersey Shore all put together into one group. And you think, and, and God says, those are my people. And we say, really? Seriously? Come on. And you read this and you think, Lord, of all the stories about the patriarchs you could tell us, why would you tell us this story? Of all the things that we could, you could put in the scriptures, why would you put this story in? And I suspect it's so that everyone who reads it gets a glimpse into the heart of God for needy, desperate, vulnerable people. this is not a story about what to do when you feel desperate. But it is a story about God's grace. It's a story about that reveals to us something of the heart of God toward people that we tend to reject and judge and push further out into the margins. And I think one of the most fascinating things to me about this story is that when you get to... when you come to Matthew's gospel and he's writing this story of the life of Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and he writes down the genealogy, he only mentions four women besides Mary. And the first woman he mentions isn't Abraham's wife Sarah and it's not Isaac's wife Rebecca and it's not Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. It's Tamar. And I think it says something to us about the economy of God's kingdom. About how God's desire is not to create a church of gathering together people who are perfect. But if a church of imperfect people who struggle with stuff and who live in the messiness and the complexity of life but are open to God and he transforms us through the grace of Christ. And I got to be honest with you. If the church is about people being perfect, I'm going to go home I have to go home. And so do you. But if the church is about people who are imperfect, about people whose lives are messy and complicated and we struggle and we don't always get it and there's a whole long ways to go on our journey, but but we want God to work in us through Christ then that's something we can all be a part of. Last week, somebody sent me a video about a, about a campaign trying to get people to come back to church. And we're not really talking about coming back to church per se, but there, in this video, it struck me that there is this underlying current of exactly what we're talking about today. About what it means to be God's people. What it means to be the church.
2: Here's a few reasons why people don't
0: go to church.
2: I can't come to church until I get my life together.
0: Church is how I got my life together.
2: Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. All they care about is your money. They care about me,
3: not about my money.
2: Is there some kind of dress code? Yes, the code is wear some clothes. Church, it just makes me nervous. I was nervous at first and then I felt
3: right at home. I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe.
0: But you can still belong. Churches for wimpy, girly men. You want to say that again? If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't want me.
2: If you knew me and what I've done... You wouldn't be worried. You can come to my church even if you were brought up Catholic,
0: Baptist, Methodist, Jewish, Mormon,
2: Lutheran, Pentecostal,
0: Presbyterian, Church of Christ, Southern Baptist. A little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing.
2: See, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship.
0: So please, come to my church
2: where nobody's perfect,
0: where beginners are welcome,
2: where socks are optional, but grace is required, where forgiveness is offered, where hope is alive, and where it's
0: okay to not be okay, really.
1: Thank you for your grace to us. You know the stuff that we wrestle with. This morning, if we're feeling desperate and vulnerable, overwhelm us with your compassion and your grace and your presence. And If we're wrestling with being judgmental, maybe even creating creating some of the despair that people feel forgive us remind us again that it's all about your grace Make us a church that's all about your grace. And transform us into the image of Christ. Amen.